Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. You're about to meet and get to know the multi-talented Cynthia Kaplan, author, musician, songwriter, actress, producer, co-host. Her credits include two acclaimed collections of comic essays, Why I'm Like This, True Stories, and Leave the Building Quickly. Her pieces have been published in the New York Times, New York Magazine, the Philadelphia Inquirer, Huffington Post, to name just a few. Called a young Dorothy Parker by the New York Times, Cynthia wrote and produced Take Me to Your Mother, which aired on both Nickelodeon and A&E Biography. Then there's the comic short, This Won't Hurt a Bit, for Morgan Spurlock's We the Economy. She's acted in numerous plays and several films, including the award-winning short Hold Up. Cynthia's music videos have been shown at comedy film festivals. She's written jingles for commercials as well as TV show theme songs. She performs regularly in clubs and music venues around the country with her band, The Cynthia Kaplan Ordeal. There's more. Her monthly co-hosting gig, The Ruthless Comedy Hour, with fellow comedians Karen Berggreen and Corey Kahaney. And oh, did I mention she's also writing a documentary about the late singer Leslie Gore? Enough from me. Let's meet and get to know Cynthia Kaplan. Welcome and thanks so much for joining me remotely today. Hi, Sandy. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I wish we were in the same studio. Wouldn't that be a novelty? (laughs) If I never hear the word Zoom again in my entire life when this is over. I wonder if I'll have to go through Zoom withdrawal when all is said and done. I don't think so. It's going to be like it never happened. Exactly. Okay, Cynthia, how did you know you were funny? When did you know you were funny? I don't know. You know, when people started laughing at stuff I said. Um, I thought I was funny in my head, and I was shy growing up. And so a lot of the, you know, I was my own audience, basically. Mm-hmm. And then uh, and then I started writing some of it down. And I, when I was an actress, I was always cast as the comic relief or the sidekick. And then I started writing and performing my own stuff, and um, it just kind of happened. I mean, it didn't happen by accident. I intended to write funny things, (laughs) and people laughed, and that was really gratifying. When you were younger and in school, were you entertaining your friends? Were you funny at family gatherings? Did people know, Cynthia, she's she's a pisser? No. No. I was not a performative child. Mm-hmm. I, I was not a ham as a kid. If someone asked me to sing or perform or do a monologue, like, oh my God, that was the most horrible request ever. Mm-hmm. I did not do any of that in front of my family. I think I was a funny kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was funny with my friends. But no one would have considered me the class clown. I wouldn't have won any awards that way because I was just, I was not out there in that way. But if I got on stage, that was a completely different thing. I needed that. I'd say I needed the fourth wall. But mm-hmm. the truth is, when I'm on stage, I don't have a fourth wall. I talk directly to the audience. Right. I break the wall. But I need that distance. I need to be the Cindy I am on stage as opposed to the one I am in the room. Where did you go to college and what did you major in? I went to the University of Pennsylvania. And oh, so you're smart. You know, back when I got into Penn, I don't think it was that hard. I I could never get in there now. But, you know, the Ivy Leagues, eh, it wasn't such a big deal, you know. No. Back when we were applying. I'm not an idiot. (laughs) 
let's get, let's set the record straight I mean, here. I'm, I'm not a you know an <laughs> astrophysicist either. Yeah, I studied uh, I studied English and I I minored in theater and political science. And so the truth is, I guess I come by my my politics and my my political writing, and a lot of my writing is very political. I come by it uh, through my education, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So writing was, in a way, a natural act for you to express yourself? I didn't start writing for myself mm-hmm. until I was in my 20s. And I. it actually started when I, I was involved with Ensemble Studio Theater. And I went to a retreat one summer on a week-long I don't know why I chose this, but I went on a week-long comedy writing retreat with Lewis Black, the oh, comedian. Uh, can I just say something parenthetically to that? I would love somebody to give him my phone number. <laughs> I am in love with this guy. I've seen him live. I can't believe you said Lewis Black. I just had to throw that in. Okay. just so That's good. okay. You know what? If somebody could give Clive Owen my telephone number, I would be just eternally fucking grateful. All right, I'll see what I can do. But okay. anyway, back to well, you. It'll be a one for one. Um, yeah, so I went on this thing and I brought some weird props. I brought some finger puppets and I brought some other stuff I had sitting around my house. And I wrote. And the whole idea was that we would write for a week and then we would get up and perform. Basically a stand-up set. Mm-hmm. But the f- odd thing happened, which is as soon as I met Lewis, I sat down at the table with him for lunch the first day, and he thought I was funny. I made him laugh, and somehow that opened up the whole weekend, the whole week for me. And I wrote, and I did my stuff. And afterwards, he said, you know, you could do this if mm. you wanted to. And mm. I didn't want to become a stand-up. Right. But I did want to write for myself, and I did see that I didn't have to wait around for somebody to cast me in order to get up in front of an audience. And so he, he was a validator. He was a, a real validator, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, and actually, it's a funny week. I would say that that was probably the most popular week of my life. Wow. Like that one week in my 20s when I went somewhere, the person in charge liked me right off the bat, and that meant that everybody liked me. It was an incredibly valid day. I'd never had that experience before or since. I mean, I forgot my toothbrush, and literally somebody said, I'll go get you a toothbrush in town. I'm like, what the fuck? Nobody does that. Like, what is that? I, and I, it was very brief and short-lived, and so I didn't get used to it. And it started from there. I, I went home, and I started writing stories and weird jokes, not kind of not topical humor so much as humor based on my emotional life. And then I started putting jokes into songs. I'd been writing, you know, sad breakup songs for mm-hmm. several years on my guitar. And I came up with some lines and I thought they'd be funnier in a song. And so I started writing songs that way. But when you say you began writing jokes or were you writing funny stories as opposed to take my wife, please? Yes, I, I was not like in the cat skills. I'm really dating myself. That's my mother. That's my mother, not me. My grandparents, the cat skills. I was right. not, no, mm-hmm. I was not talking about, I, I didn't talk about parking my car or dating mm-hmm. guys or mm-hmm. I I talked about my emotional life. That I, I had a bit with the finger puppets and my therapist. I just, mm. I was more like a, less depressive Spalding Gray 
okay. than I was a typical stand-up. I created scenarios sometimes. Like I wrote a whole bit where I was in the dead letter office of the postal service over <laughs> the holidays. And I had all these things and I'd ended in a song. So I was weird. But I hit in New York right at the time there was this thing starting up called the alternative comedy scene. And so I played those gigs, which were much freer, which allowed you, they had sketch people doing things and, and musicians and monologists. And it was a, a much freer scene than a typical stand-up club scene. When, what year was that? No. Okay. No, I'm kidding. I was, <laughs> it was the 90s. It was the 90s. Uh-huh. And so you sort of found a home in a way. I did. I did. And so I also had a reason to keep writing because I would be able to get up and, and do, do it again. And I wasn't, I wasn't honing like a single 20-minute or hour-long set that I knew I would perform in front of different audiences all over the country the way stand-ups do. Right. I was performing at these gigs where people came back again for the gigs. And so I had to have new stuff. Yeah, I would imagine. Now, were you writing and at the same time taking your clothes off or not really? How much of you was oh, exposed? No, nobody wanted to see me with my clothes. I don't mean that literally, darling. Um, <laughs> no, I know. I, I, I think I'm pretty honest. I'm certainly very honest in my books, one of the things, and I'm I'm brutally honest on stage, and I think that uh, one of the things people have written about my writing is that I often say things that people are thinking and don't uh-huh. want to say. But I often find to say them couched in humor, and that helps. Right. The other thing I was able to get away with a lot of edgy stuff because I look like a kid. I I'm I was always very innocent looking, and I I I present with kind of a deadpan and nobody's expecting the stuff yeah, to come yeah. out. And then after that it comes out, they're like, did that come out? Did she <laughs> say that? Mm-hmm. And so I, I get away with quite a lot, I think. Meaning? Meaning quite a lot of, of out there stuff. No, more in there stuff, like heavy duty truth. Ah, ah. So is it, is, is it taking your clothes off in a way when you're, when you're doing that though? Vulnerability? Yes. Yeah, I guess so. But it doesn't bother me. Well, apparently not because you've honed that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have anything to hide. <laughs> so was that a very natural act when you wrote why I'm like this, true stories and leave the building quickly? Yes. It's very natural for me to write about how I'm really feeling and mm-hmm. to make fun of it. I write about jealousy. I write about failure. Mm-hmm. I write about a lot of the things that I feel and I think other people feel, which is um, which is why, you know, which is why I guess the books worked. And um, yeah, I, I, I don't have a problem sharing. I, it's funny. I share intimate feelings often without sharing intimate details. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. And so I don't, I don't, I've never um I've never given anything away in my books that I felt bared me to the world in a way that, in a way that made me uncomfortable or that compromised you that compromised me mm-hmm. um yeah I, I I mean we're we're all everybody's got this human experience mm-hmm. there are no surprises there are real there are no secrets even 
everyone well, goes through the same, but everyone experiences mm-hmm. the same. Mm-hmm. Good so stuff, the- shitty stuff. Everyone has feelings of joy and misery and jealousy and pride and all, you know, it's just, I'm, I'm not creating the wheel, you know, I'm not creating the wheel. How much of your writing is based on what you're observing in the world? Like, I want to say that, go back to this line when I, in the introduction, that the New York Times called you the young Dorothy Parker. How much of what you do is also not about you? I feel like that was the nicest thing the New York Times has ever done. In its entire like, in its entire <laughs> history. Its entirety. Uh-huh. I mean, especially recently, they really they piss me off. But uh, I do think I'm observant of human behavior. But I I filter it through my own behavior in order to free it of judgment. Do you, know, do you know what I mean by that? That I'm I don't I don't want to appear judgmental of people. Okay. And so I try to filter what I see and what I think through my own lens. So I'm really judging myself uh-huh. within the commentary. And if I'm pointing to something for people to observe, I'm pointing at it through my own lens. So so they can either see it through the same lens or they can object, but hopefully I haven't done damage where I'm looking, except recently where I'm, I'm writing constant, you know, political stuff and I want to do as much damage as possible. And how is that going? Uh, it's going well. People really like it. If <laughs> They believe the same things that I believe. <laughs> but has this been going on for uh, yeah, you know, a I bunch mean, of years since I, maybe back 2016? I've always written sort of political. I, I've always had a political bent, but I think 2016 really blew it up for me mm-hmm. where I couldn't really write anything that wasn't political in some mm-hmm. way and where all of my music became political. Talk about your music. Is it angry? I use that word again, but I don't mean it that way. Is it sarcastic? Is it, I don't know, is it comforting on some level? No, I don't think it's comforting, but I really do strive to make it. I don't I don't get up and sort of strum a few chords and sing jokes. Mm-hmm. I really strive to write songs that are tuneful and well-structured and sound good no matter what the lyrics are. Mm-hmm. I want you to want to listen to my songs again because you like the way they sound and because the the harmonies are great and the the guitar solo is smoking and the, you know you love the way the violin lays in here and it's it's catchy and you want to sing along. I want that as much as I want you to li- listen to the lyrics because I really just love music and I like making good music and I love working with musicians who are better than I am and who bring right. you know amazing stuff to it. I say, I want this to sound like The Clash and they can make that happen in a uh-huh, way that my uh-huh. skills are just not there. I want this I want this solo to sound like Brian May from Queen. Somebody else can do that. And that's really thrilling. But as far as the writing goes, I work really hard to craft the lines in a way that bring the joke to fruition at the end of them. I craft rhymes that that bring up the humor. I hate a false rhyme. This make me really angry. I work really hard to to build the story of the song. So by mm-hmm. the time it gets to the end, it it gets bigger and bigger and and the idea becomes clearer and clearer and stronger. Do you see the humor in most of life? 
I I think I do. I think um, that's how I get over my anger at a lot of life. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so many brutal, unfair parts to living, and I'm I'm incredibly fortunate. I I have a comfortable life. I have a great family. My kids go to a, a safe school, and you know all of that stuff. I mm -hmm. I am so fortunate, but the world is a fucking mess, and our country is a disaster. I really think that, um, I think it's going to take a really long time to fix this shit. I really do. And I think so much damage has been done. And, and in some ways, so much latent destruction has been revealed because just having a, a just having a black president didn't change anything. Yeah. yeah it was all yeah. still there. Right. It was an amazing thing. Obama was amazing. Mm -hmm. But it's all still there. And it's come to light. And maybe this inflection point where these terrible people are finally opening their mouths and speaking all the terrible stuff they still believe. Right. Or the crazy stuff they believe. Maybe it had to happen. You know, I guess we hoped it would all die out before they opened their mouths again. You know, the prejudice and the bias and the anti-immigrant bias and the anti-gay bias, all these, all these things that are, are make up um, our country. We'd hoped they kind of would sort of quietly go away and it's just not going to happen. And maybe this moment had to come where everything blows up and we have to rebuild it. My outlook on that is because I'm old and I look at it, it's not going to necessarily impact me what makes me really distraught and sad is the legacy that is being left to my children and grandchildren. Look at, look at what we're giving you. Yeah. We've got to fix it fast. Yeah. Assuming that it can be fixed. So let's. But it really inspires me. What happens? I just want to add to yes, that. Yes, yes, um, yes. The point about, about uh, politics, what, what has happened is that these, these characters emerge and it's impossible not to write about them. I mean, it was impossible not to write about Trump. And I wrote a but song But what called, made your writing about him different than somebody else's? Well, because I wrote a song about the Montreal Cognitive Assessment Test, and I don't think anyone else did that. <laughs> Can you um, share some of those lyrics? Uh, you know, it's it's almost impossible. To, I know them all by heart, and it's impossible to call it up after out of thin air. But I could I could do a better job with a, a new song uh, that I just wrote about Marjorie Taylor Greene. Oh, okay. <laughs> when she made that crack about the Jewish space lasers and how you know <laughs> Jews were setting everything on fire, that you know the California fires were were Jews in outer space. <laughs> sending down lasers, that seemed an impossible thing. And so I wrote a song about, um, the opening was, I've got a quick temper. It's in my DNA. My people don't like conflict or when things don't go our way. I don't need to talk about, don't need to see both sides, don't need to reach across the ideological divide. What I am is a trailblazer when the situation's dire. I turn on my Jewish space laser and set some shit on fire. <laughs> uh, and then I go in, um, <laughs> California, don't be whining. You know you saw it coming. You didn't think there'd be no, any consequence for never casting me in something. Sure, I love your balmy weather, your sky with all its blueness, uh, but I just can't forgive you. Keep electing Devin Nunes. <laughs> what I'm a trail, uh, a hellraiser. Here's what's going to transpire. I'll turn on my Jewish space laser and set some shit on fire. So 
it goes on like that. And, and that I, just it, it, it ends with a Marjorie Taylor, a big Marjorie Taylor Green verse, and uh, and a little coda. Uh, it goes, um, and when you're nothing but ash and charred crud, I'll gope down some fresh baby blood. Uh, do 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 do. Uh, because as you know, because there's also the the belief that Jews drank Christian baby blood um, <laughs> from the right. Forgot the, about that. Yeah, that was that's a good old uh, a, a, a nice old uh, a belief that likes resurfaces every few years. <laughs> Did this just blow out of you? No, I usually I don't write until I know exactly what I want to write. No, songs come pretty quickly. Sometimes it takes a while to find the right. Um, style or to write the music and make the the lyrics and the music bring up the comedy in the best possible way. Mm -hmm. So this song I knew had to have kind of a Harry Nilsson type of vibe. Okay. That's what it felt like to me. And so that's what I worked on when we produced it. But uh, no, it didn't take me that long to write. You work with the same musicians? Uh, I do. I've worked with the same producer for through two albums and for many years. He's mm -hmm. a brilliant engineer and producer. Uh, he plays a multitude of instruments. His name is John Spurney, and I, he's one of my best friends now. And then um, I have a fantastic band, uh, Mike Hunter and John Kengla. Both of them are Broadway pit musicians, rock musicians. They've both had their own bands. They work constantly. They're really, really talented at what they do, and I love them. So the fact that the Cynthia Kaplan ordeal, your band, is not on the road, what's that been like? Well, we're not always on the road. Um, okay. I'm not a touring musician. <laughs> and I often get up with just my guitar at a gig myself. I do introduce myself as the Cynthia Kaplan ordeal, with or without the band. Mm -hmm. I think I say, once again, I'm Cynthia Kaplan, and this is my band, the Cynthia Kaplan ordeal, whether or not they're there. <laughs> And uh, it just depends on the gig, whether they come along. Some gigs, it's great for them to be there, and sometimes it's not possible. I spent many years touring over the holidays, not with John Kengla, but with Mike Hunter and with another great songwriter named Sean Altman, who writes comedy songs. And we've toured over the holidays for probably 20, over 20 years. To clubs like to, to Cambridge, to Passim at Cambridge, we've played city wineries in different cities. We've uh, done the occasional Joe's Pub gig. We played Knitting Factory for many years when it was still in Manhattan. We've gone up to Chicago. We've gone to Vermont. We went out west a couple of years. Yeah. So have you coped with the fact that you're not going anywhere or haven't been going anywhere? Uh, I don't know. Nobody else was going anywhere. <laughs> so <laughs> the comedian Mark Marin on his podcast during the pandemic, talked about the fact that he didn't worry about not getting up in front of an audience and doing stand-up because nobody else was. So he didn't feel that. All um, in the same boat. Yeah. Although I, I miss it. I miss performing. But I was working on a project throughout the pandemic and had rehearsal regularly and had to work on my songs, had to write new stuff. So I did feel like I was doing the work. Mm -hmm. I wasn't getting up and performing. And I was also... This my monthly show, uh, the Ruthless Comedy Hour with Corey Kahaney and Karen Burgreen. We'd been doing it in a club for five years, and in May we decided we would try to go remote, and we started a Zoom show. And it took it was a couple 
the first couple of months were a little rocky, but then we really figured out Zoom, I think, and we have games and polls and people reply in the chat and we have interviews, like we've tailored it to Zoom. It's reinventing yourselves. We had to, to, to keep going and to have a reason to keep writing every month. We write new material every month. We each bring our own stuff to it. Mm -hmm. Um, We felt great about calling up comics from all over the country and saying, do you want to do a set on our show? And people were really happy to perform. And so we had that as well. And and that made a really big difference, I think. Did the Ruthless Comedy Hour perform at the same venue? Well... The, the first incarnation of the show was Karen and myself and another another writer at the West End, which is up on 107th and Broadway in the basement there. And we did that for a couple of years, and then the audience sort of outgrew it. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the writers fell away. Karen and I took the show to Stand Up New York, which is a great space because the audience is just like sort of sitting there in your arms. I really, right. I really love the space and the, they were wonderful to us. And so we've been there since then. And Corey joined us as a regular about a year ago or a year and a half. We had her on constantly because we loved her so much. And then she sort of came on as a regular co-host. And so it's been five and a half years since Karen and I first started. The original show was called Lean Over. It was kind of a take on the lean in idea from Sheryl Sandberg. Sure. And then we decided to rebrand because that felt old. Mm -hmm. And uh, not long after Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, we called ourselves Ruthless. (laughs) So it had kind of, it was a double meaning. It's kind of cute, but it felt right for us. I'm just curious. I keep harping on this and I don't mean to, but when I introduced you and I kind of ticked off all the things that you do, do you get a reaction from that? Or it's just like, well, this is who I am, that I'm multi-talented and I do a lot of creative stuff. It's really nice of you to say it that way. Um, you know what I think? I think that I've just been scrapping together a career for a really long time. If I was an actress who was constantly working, constantly offered parts, maybe that's what I'd be doing all the time. Or a writer who was able to pump out a book every two years or any of these. But, you know, I was also raising kids and... And I wanted to be around for part of the time. So writing my books, that worked out really well. I was doing that while my kids were young. But it really is scraping together a creative career over many years. So sometimes you just take the next best thing that's offered. Someone says, I'm working on this show with this comedian. Do you want to write episodes for it and maybe produce them? And I'm like, yeah. I know it pays. There's money. The people are great. And I figure I'll be able to figure it out. Mm-hmm. How hard could it be? They want it to be funny. I know how to do that. I know how to structure a story because I've been writing essays for years. So I just take it. The The documentary came about because someone I worked with in TV likes me, likes my writing, and said, I'm not sure how to make this story, how to tell the story. Do you want to come write it for me So, and we'll do it together? And the I Leslie just, Gore story. Yeah, the Leslie mm-hmm. Gore story. And I just said yes, because I didn't have anything coming down the pike except getting up and performing my own stuff, which is always great, but it's not enough. I want to work. I want to make money and continue to put out work and also to continue to stretch myself. I think lots of people who live in New York figure out new ways to Reinvent themselves? Yeah, to be creative. And whether they take a podcast, I know Broadway actors who start podcasts or mm-hmm. who start other kinds of companies or who teach. Or I actually think I only do one thing, which is I write. And the things I write, um, they 
they dictate the form for me. Some jokes, I think to myself, that's a great punchline in a song. Some jokes, I think, that really can be stretched into an essay. That's a bigger idea. Mm-hmm. That is something that has a deep, that has deeper stuff going on, and I can really work with that. And some ideas are like, that's a movie. Maybe we'll write a screenplay. And then sometimes people have come to me and said, you're funny. Will you write this with me? And I just say, yes, if it seems like a good project and I like the person. Yeah. I, you know, part of life is working with great people and, and coming up with new stuff. Well, I think it's a really interesting dynamic also that you're successful by yourself and that you're successful with others. As opposed to just honing one craft is what I mean. I'll use the word versatility, but I also like the word eclecticism. I love working with other people. I love collaborating. It's really hard for me to collaborate on writing because I always think I'm right. (laughs) I'm always sure, no, 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 this is how you say it. No, this is, the joke is better this way. No, don't put the comma there. I'm (laughs) really, really a big fat writing bully, but I still love to collaborate on projects. I love when people have ideas that are better than mine. And I'm angry about it, but I love it. <laughs> and uh, and it's it's hard to be alone in your work. Oh, that's interesting because sometimes people relish that. And sometimes I do too, but sometimes you feel like if I don't get to talk to another person about this, my head is going to explode. And it's really fun to be on a set with other people and put your two cents in and they put their two cents in and suddenly you've got like a dollar. Yeah. It's great. And that's incredibly exciting. Uh, So, Sandy, you mentioned I've been very successful. And I would say that I've been successful in continuing to do the work I want to do or most of it to, um, to keep writing, to keep finding outlets for it or most of it. But I definitely, I mean, I'm very fortunate that I, I, live with someone who who's not an artist and makes a good living because if we were depending on just what I make we would be living in um a, a closet us yeah like a half a hovel in you know in the middle of a field in the middle of you know a prairie in you know on some land that nobody else wanted so Somehow that doesn't seem so bad. <laughs> so I, I work, and I I know that I know that I could probably I could support us if I had to. I'd get different kinds of writing work, but I've been able to be with my kids when I've wanted to be. I've been able to work when I've been free to and wanted to. But I do have to admit that I, I don't. I don't. I certainly don't make a living as a comic. I did well as a writer when I was writing my books. I'd have to pump out some more books to really get back up to that level. Your pieces that I mentioned on the Times and New York Magazine, are those personal essays? Yeah. And so whatever strikes you or you submit or does somebody reach out to you and say, we'd like you to write something about such and such? It's been a mixture. Um, Originally, the few years that I wrote op-eds for the New York Times, someone had recommended me to their editor, the editor at the time there. And he would send me ideas. He, he, I sent him some things he liked my writing. He would send me ideas for comic pieces, and I would work on them from in my way. And then occasionally I would pitch something to him. So, for example, he once asked me to write about a meteor. I pitched him an idea about the president's puppy. And then I pitched him a, a, one about putting my 
grandmother in a nursing home, which was not like ha funny, but it was wry. And that piece got attention, and that's how I got a book deal. Ah. I was approached by a publisher, and by then I had written a whole bunch of things, and they asked me what I want to do. And I said I'd want to put all these stories into sort of a linear, uh, a coming-of-age book, but in essays. So my first book starts when I'm in camp, and it ends after I've had my first kid, and the essays just move chronologically. They're not linked literally, but you do go chronologically through the years with me and the way I develop. And I think that the book that book did really nicely, and I, one of the reasons is I, I do think it struck a chord with that moment of going from childhood to adulthood right. and suffering through all the indignities and figuring it out. And it also came at a time when those kind of personal essays were starting to explode. It was not long after David Sedaris's first book. Uh, it came mm-hmm. out at the same time as Running with Scissors with Augustine Burroughs. There weren't that many women yet doing essays, and so it was an early in that. Or it was early out of the gate in that way, mm-hmm. and it got me a second book, and that was great. And I got to tour with it, and. Um, it was a great experience. And then I got, I, I would sometimes uh, be contacted by this or that magazine or newspaper asking if I'd like to write about a certain subject. And I would do that. And occasionally I would have an idea and then I would pitch it to a magazine or a newspaper. And I was, I've been able to place most of the stuff that I've, I've wanted to place. So for the most part, you've been able to live your life the way you'd like to which doesn't happen all that often. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think there are definitely things I would like to have been more successful at and had more opportunities. I never got to be in a Chekhov play. I never, (laughs) like, there are definitely things I wish I'd done and wondered if I had done it differently, I would have been more successful at. But I just keep pumping away. Well, how great is that? That there's, that the well has not run dry. Well, uh, you know, sometimes it feels pretty dry. (laughs) Yeah, but the world keeps giving me ideas. So, and I'm still waiting. Honestly, I, I, I'm probably still waiting for my big break. I'm, I'm pretty obscure, Sandy. I mean, my, my, if, if during the times when my first, when my books came out, I was less obscure. I was as a writer, and people knew who I was briefly in time, but. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a pretty obscure comic and musician. I have, I definitely have tens of fans, <laughs> and and they're very very loyal. Uh, okay, um, and you can find my stuff on on YouTube and on iTunes, and you can buy my music. And I've got two albums. If you want the actual physical, you know, I keep calling them albums, dating myself, but I have CDs, and they have great art on them. And I, I love making this stuff, but it, it's it's so pretty. I I fly pretty far under the under the radar. As you look back, I'm not going to put words in your mouth. You've made it work for you in the way that it has worked for you. There's no bitterness. There's no you know. Oh, there's bitterness. Bitterness. Oh, oh, right. (laughs) (laughs) No, you know what? I kind of feel like, and I've always felt that any audience is an audience. Any club I'm in, any any place I play, big or small, those people are there to see something, and it's just as gratifying to play for an audience in a tiny club somewhere as it is to play for a bigger audience in New York. It really is. 
and I get to do that and not everyone can say that and that's really fantastic and I've gotten to I've been published and I've worked on films and I've done lots of great things and I've been fortunate to be able to pursue that and I haven't waited tables for many many years but <laughs> I, I've had money jobs over the years absolutely mm-hmm. and that's just part of it well I'm guessing that whoever delivers your eulogy has their work cut out for them Yes. Her parents spent $100,000 on her education. Would you like some more? Oh, I wasn't going there. That's not what I did. (laughs) All the things that you've done, that's what I'm talking about. Not that your parents spent whatever they spent, you know. I think think my daughter, uh, my, my, uh, my gravestone, it will say, she was a hater. That's what my daughter, my daughter calls me the hater because... I really see the darkness in everything, and I pull it out to write about. That's a lot of my humor comes from that. Um, You know, I have a song called We Were the Donner Party, and it's really about how the use of the word party is— I mean, it was not a party with— you know, wine and mini hot dogs and puff in puff pastry. It was like, you know, it was a shit show. So I really do take these dark things, have a very dark and morbid sense of humor. And I am known in my home as the hater. Well, hey, it works for me. (laughs) Good. I'm glad. (laughs) Cynthia, Cindy, it was so great getting to meet you and getting to know you. And we're always game for a part two. If there's anything that you want to share with us, love to have you back. Thank you. It's been wonderful to talk to you. It's always fun to try to look back and piece together your life. And and actually, I'll come away from this feeling pretty good about myself, I think. Well, hey. (laughs) You've you've made it it all look so good. I just work with what I got here. It was just really great to meet you. And I wish you, yes, more joy and success in your life. And please come back and share whatever it is you want to with us. Thank you so much, Sandy. It was really fun to be here. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Mm -hmm.